We've seen in our study earlier today as we've been thinking of the work of the Holy Spirit in this particular matter of the use and abuse of spiritual gifts. We've seen that it is him, the, the Lord, who gives these gifts and these ministries to his church. We've seen also that the church has come into existence through the Spirit's work in regeneration as we looked at in verse 13, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Both those statements really are illustrating that wondrous miracle of the new birth which brings every believer into the body of Christ. And we see that the various gifts that are, are the various gifts that are mentioned, uh, we were just reminding ourselves that some of those gifts are no longer in exercise. It isn't that God cannot do amazing things, miraculous things from time to time. He is the sovereign Lord. But as ministries, as gifts that are still active in the church, uh, the miraculous gifts have ceased. And we looked at some scriptures that bear that out. And we just need to note in connection with that in verse 28 and uh, verse 29, it's interesting to see the order in which the apostle mentions these ministries. In both verses, he puts first apostles and second prophets, and then after that, teachers and other miracles. In other words, the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ uh, after the chief cornerstone, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, is the ministry of the apostles. As it says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And that foundation is laid in the scriptures, that foundational teaching. And it's upon the word of God, the Old Testament and New Testament, that the church of Jesus Christ goes forward as the Spirit blesses that word. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, the one on whom it all centers. Now the canon of scripture is closed now the new testament is closed and completed there is no longer that need for the miraculous gifts to be in exercise if we'd ever been in one of these meetings which are described in chapter 14 of this letter which some what we would call probably some sort of midweek meeting fellowship meeting and we'd listen to one of the prophecies almost certainly what we would have heard would have been largely the material that we find in the New Testament, which hadn't at that point been written, hadn't uh, been penned by the apostles of the New Testament. But we have the privilege uh, of having that book in our hands. And God now uses uh, these, what we would call more ordinary ministries and gifts. But they are gifts, they are given by the Spirit, and we saw that there's a great emphasis here, particularly in the first half of the chapter, on the Spirit giving to everyone 
various gifts individually uh, and very precisely, not all the same, but different. So we've seen that the gift that is given is not according to the dictation of the church or according, we might say, to the dictation of the Bible college or seminary or denomination. The gifts are given according to the will of the head of the church. And we notice, too, that within what's going on, the priority is the edification of the body of Christ. In other words, these gifts, whether in the days of the Corinthian church, thinking of tongues or healings, or in our day, preaching and missionary uh, and pastoral work and personal work and other kinds of ministry, these gifts are not given so that primarily we can just find some kind of individual expression, some kind of way to discover yourself. That's the culture in which we live. But these gifts are given for the blessing of others, for the body of Christ. And we think of our Lord Jesus Christ, think of all the gifts he had and could have exercised on earth. Think of what he forbore to exercise. Think of how he held himself back, as it were, so many times to be just a servant of others and to do such things as washing the disciples' feet, really a picture of what his whole earthly ministry had been like as he put up with their sins and failings, as he uh, taught them and was patient with them, and how he must have restrained himself, how he must have held back uh, and, and just helped others. Well, that's an example to us. So that, in a sense, gives us a, an overview of what we've already looked at. So in verses 14 to 17, we have now really a summarizing. Paul is summarizing uh, and putting into a picture what he's already said in the previous verses. And it is deliberately, of course, with Paul, it is a, an ironic picture. He's saying the body is not one member, but many so if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? It's a somewhat ridiculous picture, isn't it, that he's painting for us? A whole body that is an eye. It's like something out of science fiction. A whole body that is an ear, a whole body that is a nose, and so on. And clearly the body is composed of different but interlinking parts, necessarily so. And each part needs to function. Each part needs to be in harmonious relationship to each other. So if every single person's gift in the church was to speak in tongues, he is saying to them, or if every single person's gift in the church is to be a preacher it's not a, 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 a rich church it's a poor church if everybody were just like you or like me where would the body be it wouldn't be a body it would be something entirely eccentric and unbalanced but you notice in verse 18 he's saying but now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. And we can apply this not 
now to the miraculous gifts, but to the various gifts that we've read about in 1 Corinthians 12, in Romans 12, other kinds of gifts that are mentioned there. Some of them are the sanctification of natural gifts, which also are God-given, of course, because every good gift comes from above. And we can see the emphasis which the apostle is placing here because, in a sense, verses 14 and 20 say exactly the same thing, only the other way around. So in verse 14, for in fact the body is not one member, but many. And verse 20, but now indeed there are many members, yet one body. He wants us to grasp the individuality and the particularity of the members, but he wants us to grasp the unity which this diversity holds because this is how Jesus Christ would have his church function. And having summarizing that in that way, he then begins to apply it. And you can say once more, because he does this through this letter from time to time, he really cuts in to the errors of the Corinthian church as he applies closely what he's saying. In effect, he's saying there are two wrong reactions in this church that you need to correct. In verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And he's really speaking here to an attitude that's within some of the church, maybe a majority of the church. It's a proud attitude. It's a dismissive attitude. Basically, I don't need you. Whether they really said that to one another, we cannot be sure whether they actually vocalized it, verbalized it. But you know, you don't have to verbalize to make that attitude clear to someone. I don't need you, thank you. I have no need of you, thank you very much. There is such a thing as non-verbal communication. And this was going on. The tongues speakers, it seems, were saying to the others, I have no need of you. At least that was their attitude. And so he says, can the eye say this to the hand? Can the head to the feet? I have no need of you. And then you have this very emphatic in verse 22, this very emphatic no, or in the King James Version, nay. Much rather, these, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And then he brings out three what we would call weaknesses, apparent weaknesses in the body. Firstly, those members that are feebler or weaker. And he's thinking there the word that he uses in the Greek is suggestive of the soft internal organs of the body, organs which bleed easily, organs which need protecting within the rib cage and within the muscles of the body. These are essential for life. And then he's thinking of less honorable uh, members or less comely members, um, members that uh, are unpresentable and he says on these we bestow the greater honor we treat them with great modesty they are clothed and then he there's another element here in how he speaks about this we need to note this in verse 22 
those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable. On these we bestow greater honor. You see what he's saying here is this, that God may have a different view in this respect. Those members that seem not very important, not very gifted, not, as it were, the people you would want to put at the front of your church, those members in your mind may be very low down the scale. But what matters is God's view of them. There is such a teaching in the scripture as the first shall be last and the last first. Because what matters is how God sees us. And it's God who's composed the body. And it's God who gives greater honor to that part which lacks it. And the whole point of him doing this is that there should be no schism in the body, that there should be a harm, uh, sorry, a harmony, a care one for another, the same care for one another. And this will express itself. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, I know it's not very English uh, to be sentimental. We don't want to be sentimental. But there is such a thing as having a sympathy with one another and a, a joy in each other's joy and a sharing of each other's sorrow. That may not be English, but it's biblical. It's biblical, isn't it? If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. In Romans chapter 12, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is not sentimentality. This is biblical engagement, an expression of the oneness of the body of Christ and the love of Christ. And God has made us different and God has given us this interlinking and mutual respect so that we might edify one another and the body will be built up. All the members rejoice with those who are honored. All the members learn to suffer with those who suffer. You see, this is so different from what was going on in Corinth where all that mattered in the minds of some of them at least is this, that have I got this gift of tongues or have I not got this gift? And so some were gloating over what they thought they had and others were jealous of them and resentful of them and there was certainly no sense of rejoicing with those who did have particular gifts, rejoicing for God's blessing on them in that and the others being sympathetic and helpful to those who didn't particularly shine in certain areas of public ministry. There wasn't a sense of that and he has to bring them back to that. So that's the first thing he is, uh, he is um, a first way he's applying what he says. It's wrong to say, I don't need you. And here's the second thing in verse 15. I'm not taking it necessarily in the order that's in the, in the passage, but here's the second thing. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? 
Here's another wrong reaction. Not I don't need you, but I'm not of this body. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to even try. I'm not even going to take part in this. It's a sort of it, it, it's self-pity, and it's the wrong sort of denial because it's denying here that God has set each one of us in His body and given us gifts for the service of others. It's a kind of dropout mentality, which results from not seeing that the body of Christ has diversity. It's perilously near the behavior of the servant in the Matthew 25 parable who had only one talent and so perhaps was very conscious that he had less talents than the others and he went and dug it in the ground and he wouldn't use it. The apostle is saying this is a reaction that can be precipitated in a church in some, when some in the church start having a bee in their bonnet about certain things that they have. And because you haven't got it, we don't need you. Okay, I'm not of the body. And it can sound rather pious. But in fact, it is unbelief. And it reminds us that we do have to be very careful, all of us, about what we assert should be going on or about a church. Because anyone who asserts things We can take it for granted that they're sincere and convinced about it, but is what they're advocating biblical? Is it according to the teaching here concerning the gifts? Is it according to the teaching I've already mentioned that we were looking at this morning in Hebrews 2 and 2 Corinthians 12 concerning which gifts are still in exercise? We really do need one another in Christ. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And he summarizes, he brings everything to a head in this chapter with verse 31, but earnestly desire the best gifts. You see, he hasn't been rubbishing the gifts. He hasn't been denying there is such a thing as charismata in his day that there are gifts to be given from the head of the church to men and women, but he is saying you should earnestly desire the best gifts, but there's something else you have to bear in mind. Yet I show you a more excellent way. And he goes on in 1 Corinthians 13, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. He's going to bring love as that more excellent way. But we need to note just chapter 14 and verse 1 because the middle chapter in this section, chapters 12 to 14, the middle chapter is often lifted out, uh, read at weddings and perhaps preached on at weddings without any regard to its context. But notice how chapter 14 starts, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. And there are two words there in the Greek, apparently. Of diff- they're different words. Pursue is a strong word. It means don't take no for an answer. Desire is a less strong word. It means you may have to take no for an answer concerning particular gifts. But still desire them. You see how we cannot separate what he's been saying about 
the exercise, the use of our gifts or what God, gifts God gives and what gifts we would pray for for the church. We cannot separate that from what he's saying here in chapter 13, this more excellent way. Let's just begin to look at chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. I think this is a very challenging paragraph of Scripture because he's not talking about something that is not possible. This is not hypothesis. We only have to think of Judas Iscariot as one of the 12 who went out with the others in the mission of the 70 sent forth by Christ and came back uh, and they said that even the demons are subject to us. They went to heal the sick. They went to cast out demons uh, and to do all manner of things in the name of the kingdom of God, and Judas, no doubt, among them. We only have to think of the prophet Balaam, who prophesied exquisite prophecies in the book of Numbers, and yet was a wicked man who didn't have divine love, agape. So he's saying, though I have these gifts, tongues, uh, prophecy, the understanding of mysteries, faith, the gift of faith this would seem to be a, a special exercise of the gift of faith. And uh, undoubtedly in church history, there have been those that have had faith in a special exercise. We think of someone like George Muller or Hudson Taylor. Uh, uh, God gave them to have exceptional grace and insight to pray in the spirit and to know that their prayers were being fulfilled. It's, a, a, it's surely a gift to long for, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Uh, and there have been those, of course, who have been highly charitable, benevolent, um, bestowing their goods to feed the poor, giving their body to be burned. That may be a metaphorical term. It may be a term that literally applies to martyrdom. But what he's saying is you can have all of these gifts, spiritual or natural, but if you haven't got love, they are nothing. And it's a challenging metaphor he uses here. He says, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Apparently, these were the noises used in heathen worship, uh, particularly the worship of Dionysius or Bacchus. Uh, in Corinth, he was the god of wine, the god of festivity and theater uh, and other things, religious ecstasy. And in the temples, Devoted to Dionysius, these clanging cymbals, these sounding brasses would sound. It would be part of the uh, worship, so-called. And he's saying, if you have tongues but not love, it's just like that. It's, a, it's, it's a chaos. It's, in fact, devilish. It's like being in a heathen temple. Now, the, again, he's cutting into the Corinthian uh, mindset here because they thought this was spirit-filled. 
They thought just the mere exercise of tongues, never mind about other issues, just the mere exercise was a sign that they were spirit-filled. But he's saying if you exercise these things, any of these things, without love, it's devilish. It's not neutral. It's not like saying, well, you've got the gifts and now you need a little bit of love to top it up in the tank. But even without the love, you've half filled, you're half filled with the gift. No, he's saying without love, it is nothing. If I have not love, I am nothing. Even in the context of perhaps preaching or praying or doing some wonderful act of benevolence, even in that context, I'm nothing if I haven't got love. You see, the Corinthian church, they were valuing their gifts. And they were God-given gifts. But they didn't value particularly graces. Those very ordinary things that we keep talking about in Christian worship. Uh, Love, hope, faith. There's nothing particularly obviously dynamic about these things. They're hidden things in a sense. But it's far more important to have graces. And the way to seek the gifts is through grace. Love is the way to seek the gifts. That's what he's saying in chapter 14. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Why is that? Because that's a more sort of celebrated gift? Because it's a more prominent gift? No, he's saying the reason you should want to prophesy is because actually it's a known tongue. You're speaking to men in a tongue that they can understand. The problem with tongues is that people do not understand. Unless, of course, there's an interpretation. In which case, if you put the two together, it becomes like a prophecy. But the point is, it has to be for edification. It has to be to comfort and to encourage and to build up. In other words, the exercise of love in your heart should make you want that particular gift. And it's worth asking yourself, my brother, my sister, as you seek to walk in the love of Christ, what gift would you ask God for, for yourself or for this church or for other believers? You see, he's showing them that gifts without love are nothing. I like very much what the Puritan John Owen has to say here. He says, the least grace is better assurance of heaven than the greatest gift. That really sums up Chapters 12 to 14. The least grace is better assurance of heaven than the greatest gift. The gifts, of course, are important. We need preachers like this. We need preachers with the tongues of men and the angels. Of course we do. We've got a dearth of them in this country. People who, who can hold the crowds. People who people just cannot stop listening to in spite of themselves. We need that. We need people who understand their Bible back to front, who can interpret it and explain it and bring out the Christ-centeredness of it. We need, of course, the gift of faith. We need these things, but far, far more important is love. 
It's love, which, as he ends up saying, is the greatest of all these things. The least grace is better assurance of heaven than the greatest gift. There's some homework for us, brothers and sisters, to remember that statement. The least grace is better assurance of heaven than the greatest gift. May God enable us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ.